There is an entire second economy built on vice. Its global architecture, a shadow world designed to remain unseen, was conceived and birthed by America's bootleggers, specifically by Meyer Lansky. It has never been taxed. It has never suffered a recession. It has only grown, fed by the profits of human misery, nurtured through offshore tax havens, little islands of paradise, for a hundred years. And it fuels the underworld in ways too dark to fathom. Imagine how big Meyer's baby is now. Of course, Bringing a monster like this into existence wasn't an easy delivery. There were oceans of blood on the floor. Two of the four hitmen wore police uniforms and walked with their revolvers drawn. The other two were dressed like J. Edgar Hoover's G-men in suits and trench coats and carried Tommy guns. The warm breath from their mouths billowed before them on that cold February morning. If witnesses had known who they really were, the breath clouds would have looked ominous, like demons ramping up for battle, dragons of the streets. Despite the fire burning inside these men, there's no doubt their nostrils were frozen. That's one of the drawbacks of Valentine's Day in Chicago. It's too cold to smell the roses that the city's lovers were set to give and receive. The hitman walked past the florists and grocers and into the auto garage, where Irish gangster Bugs Moran ran his bootlegging operation. They announced to the seven men inside that they were under arrest, had them line up against the wall, arms raised, and gun them down like Romanovs. Although the hitmen missed killing Moran by seconds, he was late to the office that day. The massacre was brutal enough to bring an end to the Irishman's operation. This fatal blow was a final crescendo by the gangster who Moran had been in competition with, importing Canadian booze across Lake Michigan then trucking it to speakeasies throughout the Midwest. Al Capone. With the Moran gang put down, Capone's decade-long violent takeover of the nation's second-largest city was complete. On February 14, 1929, he sealed the fate of his hundred million in annual profits business empire and became public enemy number one of the United States. I dropped a name in our last episode where we met Arnold Rothstein and learned of his empire-building magic. Maybe you caught it. Daniel Roper, the commissioner of the Bureau of Internal Revenue from 1917 to 1920. Roper was appointed by Woodrow Wilson as America entered the First World War. He was the right man to lead the agency through the demands that an increase in taxes would bring 
to partially fund the war effort. You see, this job was a law enforcement challenge as much as it was a managerial one. Legislating a tax hike would only work if there was an agency to enforce it. And that agency was now Daniel Roper's. But something beyond the investigation and pursuit of tax fraud also fell under internal revenue at the time. Drug enforcement. At the turn of the last century, America was in an opioid crisis. Patent medicines with opioids in them were sold over the counter. Heroin, a new drug, was used in cough medicine and even had its own ad campaign. Cocaine was an ingredient in Coca-Cola until 1906. And physicians could prescribe any and all narcotics. So, this was the landscape that preceded prohibition. Americans were seeing their families and neighborhoods destroyed by opioids, with New York City being the epicenter of addiction and abuse. In 1915, after some starts and stops, Congress passed the Harrison Act, the most significant drug control legislation in American history. And, as they would do four years later with the Volstead Act, which prohibited production, distribution, and sale of alcohol, Congress placed enforcement of the new drug law under the Bureau of Internal Revenue. Why? Because those were the folks who tracked and collected taxes on the legal sale of pharmaceuticals. They enforced the duty. See how that worked? This is how we got the T-men, or Treasury men, who were charged with hunting bootleggers. With the Drug Act, the Harrison Act, Congress established a precedent for where to place the burden of enforcing the law on the production, sale, and transportation of illegal substances. By 1920, the Treasury was the agency charged with taking down both drug and alcohol kingpins. In the day of Daniel Roper, this kind of law enforcement was new. Fortunately for him, the daunting task of creating and building a law enforcement agency that had the necessary skill set to hunt gangsters had some clear parallels to an existing agency, postal inspectors. Roper's special assistant once quipped that postal inspectors, quote, can spot a missing penny quicker than anyone in the world, end quote. They were so formidable in their efficiency as a federal investigative unit, they were the only U.S. agency compared at the time to Scotland Yard. And the kind of law enforcement mind that excelled within the postal inspectors was one uniquely calibrated for the type of crime-solving required in tracking emerging crime syndicates behind drug and alcohol smuggling. This wasn't arrive on the crime scene and figure out the crime type of investigation. Hunting syndicates is about connecting details and understanding business models. It's about finding all those pennies. Follow the money, remember? So the lawman who was tasked by Roper to lead the Treasury's new effort 
was plucked right from the top of the Postal Inspection Division, Elmer Irie. As we learned in our last episode, Irie established the Special Intelligence Unit in the Treasury, founding the T-Men. It was small, but mighty. By the time Prohibition came into effect, Irie was already coordinating law enforcement efforts across six different agencies, including the Coast Guard. And, as formidable a lawman as he was, Elmer Irie soon found his agency facing a dilemma for which no other law enforcement division had an answer. The Coast Guard's radio stations had been intercepting boatloads of radio messages, all sent in code. The Export-Import Enterprise of Shipping Booze During Prohibition is often lumped under the term bootlegging. In the day, the T-Men called them rum runners. In truth, they were pirates, with some very fancy methods of communication. They had shortwave radios and used ciphers when on them. But no one at the Coast Guard was deciphering the intercepts, let alone connecting them to rum runners. In Elmer Irie's unit, the rising flow of illegal booze was also being met with an ever-increasing flow of illegal drugs. Irie had every reason to suspect that the rum-running pirates could be behind both. By 1925, he knew he was tracking an export-import empire. He'd even pinned the biggest drug and booze-running kingpin as Arnold Rothstein the man who had his own casino in Central Park and owned everyone from the business titans of Long Island's Gold Coast to the Democrats of Tammany Hall. Rothstein was widely known as the Brain, remember? A racketeer of that scale and intelligence was immediately at the top of Irie's list. Hell, I've even wondered if it was Irie who gave him the nickname. The T-men had been tracking Arnold Rothstein for years, watching him gather a force of young gangsters under his leadership. But Irie didn't have the first clue who Rothstein's seafaring delivery boys were or what they were saying on these intercepts. Irie had enough. He needed a codebreaker with Herculean powers. So, he sent Charles Root from the Coast Guard to knock on Elizabeth Friedman's front door. Now, pirates are hard to catch. The bodies of water they traverse are vast. And for Irie and the Coast Guard, without knowing more about their smugglers, including the suppliers who provided the product and where the product was heading, catching them in the act was a near-impossible feat. Suspicions about Rostin aside, who even knew if these were lone pirates or part of a supply chain under a single contract? But, lucky for Irie, whoever they were, they sure were chatty. The Coast Guard handed two years of intercepts over to Elizabeth, and in three short months, she decrypted it all. This traffic covered a period of more than a year was from many different sources, both on the Atlantic and Pacific coasts, 
and the volume was increasing daily. Upon the first date, work of solution was begun upon the hundreds of messages on file. Within two months, a great mass of the accumulated traffic was reduced from unknown to known. It was so impressive. They gave her a clerk, another woman. And the two of them decrypted more. Each time they did, there was actionable information. The Coast Guard could now intercept the ships based on what Elizabeth had decoded in the messages. When that happened, the ciphers changed. There was a coordination in response to the Coast Guard's new power that spoke to a top-down organization behind the myriad of ships. Someone on the inside of Rothstein's shipping empire likely had cipher machines and knew how to use them. Elizabeth was playing signal intelligence cat and mouse with an unknown, unseen gangster. Because of the scale of booze being imported via these endless ships, the collection of intercepts was relentless. It was a mountain of work, and Elizabeth wasn't into it, not without a unit of her own, one that could coordinate with the other agencies that Elmer Irie had pulled together for his work. The IRS, the Coast Guard, the Prohibition Bureau, the Narcotics Bureau, Customs, and the Secret Service. If the T-Men wanted Elizabeth's continued help, this effort would have to be done right. That is how Elizabeth Friedman pulled together a team to form the first independent signal intelligence unit, albeit paid for by the Treasury. One that eventually grew into the NSA. She was an intelligence officer after Elmer Irie's own heart. And while working for him, she changed everyone's view of what signal intelligence had to offer. The method in which Elizabeth decrypted the intercepts led her to also grasp a bigger picture. In order for the decrypted messages to be actionable, she started doing strategic intelligence. She mapped the names and movements of the criminals behind the rum-running empire. And she saw the strategy. She saw the business model. By decrypting their communications, she could predict where the ships were going to be, how the trucks were run, the amount of money changing hands through secret LLCs and hidden bank accounts. She saw their operation. This was a secret business empire, an organization, one that, even Irie didn't know at the time, had a name. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. When Elmer Irie watched Arnold Rothstein take Meyer Lansky under his wing, he knew that Rothstein wasn't alone. Arnold, like Meyer, had an Italian-American partner, except, unlike Lucky to Meyer, this man was an equal brain to Rothstein. He was, by Irie's account, the greatest criminal mind that legendary Treasury official had ever encountered. Johnny the Fox Torrio. Arnold Rostein knew Torrio from his bookmaking and prostitution rackets. This was the gangster who helped supply prostitutes for the men Rostein was in business with, as well as the politicians they would both leverage. Now, Torrio had been shuttling between New York and Chicago for a decade before Prohibition began. A man he knew there, whom he called Uncle, had around a hundred brothels throughout the city, and he'd been having problems with the Black Hand. The Black Hand were a type of extortionists from southern Italy, Naples primarily, where the Camorra Mafia has long ruled. Since the 19th century, many myths have been spun of the Black Hand's presence and activity in the United States. But it's fair to conclude that they were very real and, like other mustache peats, had epicenters in New York, New Orleans, and Chicago. In Torrio's day, they were known to terrorize local businessmen by putting a black handprint on storefronts, marking that territory as their own. And where the storefront was a brothel, God only knows where those handprints were laid. So Torrio went to Chicago at his uncle's behest, and he was so effective at organizing the muscle to clear out the extortionists, that he ended up taking over the business, whacking his uncle, and building that enterprise until he controlled nearly the entire prostitution racket in the nation's second largest city. This, of course, led Torrio to control nearly all of Chicago's politicians. And because he was a genius bookmaker, he also went for the gaming racket. Now, I can't prove that it was Rothstein's buddy Torrio who helped him fix a 1919 World Series in Chicago. But connecting that one big dot seems like some pretty simple geometry. Torrio did something else in 1919, just before Prohibition began. It was so noteworthy in and of itself, one might say it defined how we have come to understand the underworld. He brought his protege from New York to Chicago to run the muscle. A young man who Lucky Luciano knew well and called his cousin in the left-handed way. Alphonse Gabriel Capone. New York and Chicago. Rostein with Meyer and Lucky headquartered in New York City and Torrio with Capone headquartered in Chicago. 
That was the partnership. They called it the combination. And Lansky wasn't hyperbolic about its power. The combination was the original organization of men who built a criminal empire that quickly surpassed the operation and profits of the entire U.S. steel industry. Now, they had other partners, but really those were just subsidiaries. There was Mo Dalitz and the Cleveland crew on Lake Michigan, importing from Canada. There was Longies Willman in New Jersey, who used Canadian islands as points of landing on the shipping route to help wash clean the culpability of their Canadian partners. There were crews down in Florida who were totally nuts. Florida itself was nuts. Everyone in that state needed liquor for their tourism economy. And no matter how imposing the T-men were, Florida law enforcement and politicians just didn't give a fuck. And yes, Meyer was there. He was everywhere, floating from state to state to make sure his enterprise was rolling and growing. Capone aside, most of the subsidiaries were run by Meyer's friends and associates. And there was one who was also top of Irie's list. Arthur Flegenheimer, also known as Dutch Schultz. Dutch because his family emigrated from Germany, Deutschland. And Schultz because he'd once worked for Schultz Trucking, one of the businesses that ran shipments from Canada via road. Dutch was notorious to his mates, his rivals, and law enforcement alike for his violent, psychotic rages. This was a very dangerous man. Now, I need to say here that piecing together the details of Dutch Schultz's relationship to Meyer Lansky is one of the trickier research efforts I've encountered in this whole century-long morass. Most biographers have him connected to Lansky long after the origins of Prohibition in the 1930s. But in Hank Messick's reporting, he connects Dutch to Lansky as early as 1921 via Arnold Rothstein. These guys were in a shared crew. And I'll go as far to say that Dutch was an underling to Lansky. Why? Because anything short of that would have led to Dutch's immediate assassination after he sent muscle to pump two bullets into Arnold Rothstein's gut. On November 4, 1928, the brain enjoyed his dinner at Lindy's on Broadway, a favorite joint not far from New York's Park Central Hotel. Park Central was one of the city's grand hotels, where, for Rothstein's crew, any and everything took place, including business meetings and the nightly poker game. At dinner at Lindy's, Arnold got a call to meet an associate of Duchess, who was hosting a game at the Park Central. Rothstein was in a good mood that night, looking forward to the presidential election, which would happen in two short days. Herbert Hoover was the Republican nominee positioned to win. It was an outcome on which Rothstein had bet a fortune and nothing made the brain happier than making money off a sure thing. Two hours later, he was found lying in the hotel's service entrance, mortally wounded, but not yet dead. The news of the shooting rattled every corner of the city. 
The idea of what could surface with Rothstein's death was a fatal thought itself. The political den of Tammany Hall was in a hard-sweat panic. The Gatsbyite narcissists were shook by the sudden confrontation of mortality. The gangsters Rothstein ran were temporarily unmoored. Law enforcement was in a frenzy, gathering any and every chief to Rothstein's hospital room. And Meyer Lansky was cool as a cucumber. It would take two days for Arnold Rothstein to succumb to his wounds. The only information the police were able to get out of him about his assassination was the statement, You stick to your trade, I'll stick to mine. He knew who shot him. And he took that intelligence with him. The brain died on November 6, 1928, just as the politician he backed soared to 444 electoral votes and won the presidency. Did I mention Meyer was engaged? Yeah, he was. This first time, to a woman named Anna Citrone. They were married on May 9th, six months after Rothstein was shot, three months after Capone's St. Valentine's Day massacre. Meyer planned the honeymoon in Atlantic City, and he invited everybody. Luciano, Torrio, Capone, the Cleveland and Detroit boys, East Coast associates like Frank Costello, Lepke, and Zwillman. Everybody came, except the Mustache Peets. They weren't invited, like it was about to whack them anyway. It was the first real crime boss meeting, and Meyer Lansky arranged it. His wedding was the perfect cover to gather everyone together. They had shit to discuss. The questions on the table for the combination were, who was going to get Rothstein's piece of the empire? Were they splitting and heading their separate ways, or would they keep the business intact? If they did, who were the bosses now? An agreement was made. The combination would continue, but be reformed. There would be a board, like any successful enterprise, and Meyer was named chairman. He had the brain, like Rothstein, and he knew how to track, manage, and grow the front corporations and their associated bank accounts, where these bootleggers had been hiding their profits. I know we've all seen the movies where the mafias run by bags of cash. Okay, sure. Maybe the extortion rackets or low-end heists. But do you really believe that an empire bigger than U.S. Steel didn't have bank accounts and wire transfers? You think these men just had warehouses filled with stacks of 20s? Come on. Rothstein brought in the bankers, remember? This is why. They helped him set up accounts for all this money just as Deutsche Bank did for the Nazis. It was now up to Meyer Lansky to keep the agreed-upon flow of money between all the parties constant and secure. With the division of Rothstein's empire, 
came the silos underneath the board. Torrio would step back. He kept trying to retire anyway. And Capone would absorb Rothstein's Chicago holdings into his outfit. Lucky divided up Rothstein's assets in New York into five parts, each getting an Italian family name and capo. The remaining subsidiaries stayed intact. By the end of the meeting, the enterprise had a new name. The combination became the syndicate. And Meyer's first test as chairman of the board would come when Elmer Irie's T-men, based on the discoveries and analysis from their secret weapon, Elizabeth Friedman, would pop Al Capone's part of the operation. Less than six months after the syndicate officially formed, the stock market crashed. Black Tuesday brought on a world of hurt, the Great Depression. And what do Americans do when they're hurt and depressed? They turn to vice, drugs, sex, gambling, and booze. As the nation stumbled its way into the 1930s, the syndicate's second economy was set to soar. And Elizabeth took flight with them, literally. Running a signal intelligence unit that was coordinating with six different federal law enforcement agencies meant lots of travel. Only woman on plane, she scribbled on her notepad. In the only radio interview Elizabeth ever did, The host asked her how she managed the two businesses of running a home with two young children and an important job. It was all so shockingly unusual at the time. Her answer? Oh, it solves itself rather nicely, especially when I have such a grand housekeeper to look after things at present. I never really made any definite plans for a career. It just happened. In early 1933, that unplanned career was about to cause a shipwreck, which would lay bare the hidden identities of both Elmer Irie's secret weapon, Elizabeth, and the real owners of a bunch of dirty shell companies. As Arnold Rothstein's Tammany politician, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, ascended from governor of New York to president of the United States, Al Capone still hadn't been caught. Public enemy number one was at large, and it seemed law enforcement was helpless to do anything about it. There had been some attempts to charge Capone and put him away. He even spent a few months in prison for contempt of court and having a concealed weapon. But in terms of stopping the crime spree that was rocking a nation of laws, nothing was sticking. Capone still had a grip on the city and was being heralded in the press as a dark knight. His operation was pulling in $5.6 billion annually in today's dollars. Annually. While 15 million Americans were out of work. A street criminal who had been able to buck the system and earn his fortune through fists and bullets taking care of his own along the way red like Robin Hood. And Capone soaked it up. 
he was always ready with a quote that would cement him in the press as the underworld's king. It was a problem for our system of authority, all the way up to the chief in the White House. What the syndicate, and even the president, didn't know was just how close Elmer Irie was to snatching that crown. For years, Elizabeth had locked onto a company called Consolidated Exporters Corporation. She was decrypting their signals, tracking their ships, mapping their enterprise. And it was massive. With a corporation registered in Vancouver, Canada, Consolidated Exports amassed a fleet of 70 ships, give or take some of the smaller runners. Author Jason Fagone, in his remarkable book on Elizabeth, The Woman Who Smashed Codes, gives a great description of what she uncovered on Consolidated's operation. Quote, The motherships functioned as huge floating warehouses anchored as far as 60 miles offshore and capable of holding up to 100,000 crates of liquor. Their ships spanned the U.S. East Coast and West Coast and stretched into ports in the Caribbean and South America. The rum-running business was hemisphere-wide. The codes used by Consolidated were more sophisticated and secure than any of the military codes that Elizabeth had encountered in her work with her husband William for the War Department during the Great War, later called World War I. It was in that work that the Freedmans created the science of cryptanalysis, decrypting every single wartime intercept of our War Department. And all of that was no match to the smuggling operation of our gangsters. In their use of coded communications, Consolidated ran their operation like a sophisticated foreign spy network, crafting different codes to reside within the layers of their business, from ship to port to truck to destination, each layer was hidden within the next, like nesting dolls. And where Elizabeth would hand her decryptions and strategic analysis over to Irie's men in law enforcement, enabling them to catch the smugglers in the act, someone within the brass at Consolidated would change their codes. As I've described before, it was a dynamic game of cipher cat and mouse. I mean, guys, let's just note here something, that the combination, that's what they call themselves, our gangsters, they call themselves the combination, which, when run by Rostein and Al Capone's mentor Johnny Torrio, had consolidated its men and efforts into an export-import smuggling empire, actually named their biggest front company Consolidated Exports. Just, we just have to note that stuff. Officially, Consolidated was owned by the Rifles, Hotel Magnets in Vancouver, and their American investor, Joseph P. Kennedy, father of future American President JFK. 
Now, there was a time in Elizabeth's early tracking when Consolidated had what appeared to be a rival, a fleet of ships owned by another Canadian family, the Hobbs brothers. Then, Joe Kennedy bought them out, brought it into Consolidated, and helped grow that organization to ever greater heights. A tower of criminality about to be toppled by Elizabeth herself from a unique stage for all the world to see. She was coming out from the shadows to expose the gangsters. It was time. Irie had built an impeccable conspiracy case against consolidated exports involving 23 of its operatives. The case was tried in federal court in New Orleans, and the conspiracy ringleader, plus three other individuals, were known associates of Al Capone. The team men had finally caught public enemy number one. This was the first step to proving his enormous wealth, which would prove the scope of taxes he'd long evaded. It would be the nail in the coffin that generations since would reference, without realizing it, when spouting out the line, they got Al Capone on tax fraud. On May 2, 1933, in that New Orleans courtroom, Elizabeth Friedman stepped into the witness box on behalf of the government. She was the star expert witness, as her work was the key, the literal ciphers that brought it all down. Please state your name. Elizabeth Smith Friedman. What is your occupation? I am a cryptanalyst. And what are the duties of a cryptanalyst? A cryptanalyst is a person who analyzes and reads secret communications without the knowledge of the system used. Objection! Oh my God, the cipher cracker who has been playing cat and mouse with consolidated exports was a woman. Immediately, Capone's attorneys tried to stop this testimony. Who was this ridiculous housewife? Why did she think herself an expert? This was clearly feminine voodoo, and it's a disgrace to the court. Objection! But the judge was intrigued. The petite woman in his witness box, wearing a pink dress and hat with a flower in it, seemed to know her stuff. He allowed Elizabeth's testimony. Elizabeth walked judge and jury through the coded messages and how she cracked them. Two more objections from Capone's attorneys. On cross, they attempted the tried-and-true technique of evisceration by gender. How shall I address you, madam or miss? I am Mrs. Friedman. Before you could properly translate these symbols, somebody had to tell you that it was symbols in reference to the liquor transportation. Oh, no. I might receive symbols related to murder or narcotics. The same symbols that these gentlemen use to mean what you say, whiskey, beer, position, could not have been made up by people in code for transportation of women from Europe? No, not with the meaning given here in I move that all testimony from this lady be stricken out. The judge overruled. Elizabeth continued with her testimony, demonstrating how her work had exposed the men who were on trial as rum-running criminals. 
and sealed their fate. Only a few short years after fingerprints were used as evidence in a federal court, Elizabeth had introduced cryptanalysis as a method of forensic science. Our girl just kept making history. When she walked out of that courtroom, a new phase in her life began. She was a celebrity. The press had a field day with her. As the Treasury continued building its cases against smugglers in one federal jurisdiction to the next, so did they send Elizabeth. She became the go-to expert witness, sometimes even breaking out her blackboard to give the jury a proper tutorial, just as she had at Riverbank with William while training the War Department's first generation of codebreakers. Reporters and readers loved it all. What a story. A code-breaking housewife who took down gangsters. Elizabeth was a hit. The fame was the bane of her existence. To Elizabeth, it was ridiculous spectacle. J. Edgar Hoover, who was so envious of Elmer Irie's success it made his blood boil, agreed. He would soon do his damnedest to rewrite history and take credit for Elizabeth's genius, for her work during this time and in her next chapter to come. By the time prosecutors got to Capone himself, Elizabeth was no longer needed as the star witness. To J. Edgar's even greater dismay, that honor fell to another of Irie's agents, a man named Mike Malone, the greatest undercover agent ever in the history of law enforcement. Remember my rant in the last episode about the film The Untouchables? Well, the Sean Connery character was based on Malone, who was Irie's agent, not Hoover's. Malone had infiltrated Capone's gang to sit with old Scarface himself. He was still undercover during the trial until catching Capone's bodyguard bringing a loaded gun into the courtroom to intimidate a witness. Malone exposed the plot and himself as a T-man, and Capone was convicted. My favorite scene from Malone's life is the ride he took in the elevator with Capone after the conviction. Capone turned to Malone and said, You took your chances, I took mine, I lost. And then Capone was sent to the rock, Alcatraz. When he got really sick there from syphilis four years later, he was transferred to another prison where he would die, penniless. Gangsters don't fail to pay their taxes because they're greedy, because it's some choice. They can't pay their taxes because they're criminals. They cannot claim how they make their money. So they hide it and go to extremes to avoid detection. Thanks to Elmer Irie, the biggest front company set up to do this for the syndicate, Consolidated Exports, failed. Meyer Lansky was cool with how Arnold Rothstein died, but not how Capone did. When the IRS took down Capone and took all his money, 
Lansky was in a panic. He needed a solution, and that brain came up with one. He went to Switzerland, leveraged his influence, and started a new operation, offshore banking. Meyer would place all of the syndicate's holdings offshore, where the taxman couldn't get to it. Hell, he already had accounts and addresses on the islands they used to help ship their booze. Now that the Swiss, with a little prodding, were codifying the protections of offshore banking into law, keeping the names behind those accounts anonymous and untraceable, why not use that system for storing and distributing the syndicate's wealth? The brilliance of this underworld business model would later get a name as well, money laundering. And it is attributed solely to Meyer Lansky. Because of Elizabeth Friedman's own genius, Meyer Lansky created the laundromat. And it grew into a second economy that has never been taxed, never had a recession, and continues to fuel the world beneath us in ways too dark to fathom. The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman. Editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. The World Beneath is a five-season series, with each season consisting of 10 narrative episodes and 10 sit-down interviews. You are listening to season one, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and our sit-down episodes on Thursdays wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.